0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we're lucky enough to be... Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Andrew S. Tompkins. Andrew is a lecturer at University of Sheffield and the author of Better Active Than Radioactive, anti-nuclear protest in 1970s France and Germany. Better Active Than Radioactive was published just last summer in 2016, so hot off the presses by the standards of academic publishing, and you can pick up a copy from Oxford University Press. Not only does it provide a social history of the anti-nuclear movement at the grassroots level by combining government sources and police reports with activist newspapers and oral history interviews with protesters, it traces the Franco-German networks behind the anti-nuclear protest in a truly transnational history of the movement. No small feat. Andrew has been good enough to join us for a closer look at his book today. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, before we get into Better Active Than Radioactive, which, by the way, let me say,
1: great title, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? (laughs) Thank you. It's not mine, actually, but taken from a slogan from the movement uh, at the time. So, I guess I grew up in suburban North Carolina and uh, went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for my um, BA studies, where I did a degree in international studies. And while I was there, I studied abroad in France for the first time. Um, And I had kind of always been interested in the world beyond North Carolina, as it were. And UNC was sort of my first springboard to getting out and seeing a bit more. I later did a master's degree there that took me also to Paris and Berlin. And after that, I kind of didn't want to let go of Berlin and and kept finding ways to go back, even while I did an MA at the University of Chicago in history. And then um, for research after I started my PhD or my DPhil at the University of Oxford. I can imagine that. I've spent time in Berlin, and it's an amazing city. Yeah, definitely. How did you come to write Better Active Than Radioactive? Um, well, I guess this stems from a kind of long-term interest that I've had in protest movements. While I was an undergraduate, I um, was briefly kind of involved in student protest at the University of North Carolina. Not in a particularly major way, but enough to sort of get a, a slight inside feel for how it worked. And for my first master's degree, which was in political science, I wanted to do something about Protest movements and sort of transnational connections, and at that time I focused on ATTAC, which was a sort of very prominent anti-corporate globalization movement. Um, and I wanted to see how the French and German branches of that worked together. But I, over time, sort of drifted away from political science and sociology and towards uh, history, uh, where I felt a lot more sort of comfortable methodologically, where I felt like there was a lot more freedom to do different things. And I guess better active than radioactive was initially meant to be sort of something about 1968 and then about the post-1968 period. I kind of had a very large scale PhD project in mind um, that involved looking at a series of different movements during the 1970s as exemplars of a kind of long term change that we see moving from the student movements, as they're called, of 1968 towards the so-called new social movements. And I was particularly interested in, I think, Maoism, uh, which was seen as this sort of having had a big surge forward after 1968 in both France and probably to a lesser extent, but also in Germany. So Maoism on the one hand, and then sort of pacifist movements, or, but not specifically pacifists, more these sort of nonviolent action groups. And then I was interested in the anti-nuclear movement as a kind of paragon of what we call new social movements. Mm-hmm. And after a lot of sort of gentle encouragement, this might be a little bit large as a project, I kind of hacked it down to the anti-nuclear movement alone, which seemed capable of encompassing some of the things that I wanted to say about these other groups and about this long-term transition um, away from a certain mode of protest in 1968 and towards uh, something else um, that we associate with the new social movements. So it's really
0: hard to write a good social history. I mean, as you point out, there's so many different actors that are involved here let alone a good transnational history. And it seems like you really came up with a clever way to accomplish both of these things in this book. Can you tell us what is a social movement as you're talking about these new social movements? And how do you go about explaining something so complex?
1: Thanks. I think what I tried to do with this was I was trying to get away from a certain mode of explaining transnational uh, history, particularly transnational histories of protest, in terms of kind of big leaders, key organizations, or maybe even sort of critical event kind of conventions or conferences or something like that. I felt like that didn't necessarily reflect, um, I guess, thinking back to my own experience as a a student activist, I thought that there were other ways in which people engaged with the world beyond their own borders. Even people who couldn't necessarily travel abroad very easily could engage with the world in uh, different ways. And so that was part of my inspiration for, looking beyond those sort of hierarchically structured organizations, leaders, and what I would consider in some sense the usual suspects of transnational history. I conceived this in terms of a movement which poses a lot of difficulties in sort of describing what that is. A movement encompasses organizations, it encompasses leaders, but it also encompasses casual activists, people who participate sporadically, people who sympathize but don't necessarily always show up at demonstrations or certainly don't necessarily always come to meetings. And I wanted to sort of try and think about how this complex set of people come together. What I wound up doing, I think, a lot of was focusing on protest events. And in the introduction to the book, I kind of lay out this quick reference history of a few major anti-nuclear struggles during the 1970s, where I kind of go through the dates and the kinds of numbers that, that showed up at demonstrations. So the protest events wind up being a useful way of Charting a certain evolution over time, um, but it's also about how people participated in these locally organized movements, and that was actually key to the way I conceptualized, or rather, the way the anti-nuclear movement conceptualized itself. It was very much something that emerged around local sites where nuclear power stations were being proposed. There was a kind of local resistance that emerged almost everywhere, not always with a lot of success, but in in various constellations. So. When you come to this topic on the face of it,
0: the anti nuclear movement sounds like a single protest issue, but you really come out swinging saying that no, this is not the case. So, who's protesting against
1: nuclear energy and and why? There's an awful lot of actors involved in this. So, I have already mentioned sort of these local sites are a kind of nexus around which um, protest tends to organize. So, logically, one of the main sets of actors involved would be local activists who are from a particular area and who are concerned for a variety of reasons about what a new nuclear power plant would do to the area in which they live. So I think we tend to think about the anti-nuclear movement as being sort of inspired by fear of risks of dangers of uh, radioactivity and that is certainly one element but Surprisingly I think in the early 1970s it wasn't particularly prevalent as a cause certainly some people referred back to Hiroshima and military use of nuclear technology as something that you know was was a threat and sort of made tangible the the threat that a civil nuclear power plant could pose for a local community but actually people were talking about a lot of other things they were concerned about a sort of sense of injustice, about why should our communities bear this burden uh, when the benefits are being distributed, perhaps regionally, perhaps nationally, perhaps even across borders, uh, actually, in certain instances. But why, why does it have to be us? Um, that sort of sense of injustice. They were also very much concerned about their own material interests uh, in the sense of if you were a farmer or a fisherman, uh, you might be concerned about how a nuclear power station could affect your crops, It's uh, in southern Baden, where a lot of this sort of really took hold in a a major way. It actually wasn't concerned about radioactivity or about sort of how radioactivity might affect people genetically or affect crops genetically. But it was how about a large scale industrial power station might affect the local community. One way that that could occur would be through the cooling towers, which uh, were proposed as one means of cooling the nuclear reactors which would supposedly generate steam, which would block out the sun, which would make it difficult to grow crops like um, wine grapes, which were central to the local economy. Fishermen, of course, could worry about genetic mutations. But interestingly, um, I didn't see a lot of people who were talking about genetic mutations that would harm people, but that would harm the sales uh, of fish as a product, and that that was sort of the the key concern. So these local actors were in some sense not concerned by, not necessarily so much concerned by the kind of post-materialist issues that we tend to associate with the new social movements in the sort of theoretical literature on new social movements, but actually by very material uh, issues about how they um, would financially be affected by it. More broadly speaking, these communities were also concerned about what industrialization would do in terms of pollution, perhaps, but also in terms of where jobs would go. People didn't always want to give up the professions that they had, you know, had for years or for generations even um, in order to go work in a new, newfangled uh, nuclear power station and then, of course, there were a lot of traditional concerns about the environment, about nature protection that flowed into this, but weren't necessarily the most immediate concerns that people had at the forefront of their mind. So that, I think, is kind of where a certain mix of initial motivation comes from. But it's in the, in the interaction with state um, and industry authorities that most local people are becoming much more vehemently opposed to nuclear energy. Um, That happened happened in part because of the regions where um, these power stations were supposed to be built, which were often thinly populated and hadn't been heavily industrialized. So industrialization was going to be a shock to them. So regions that felt like they had been wronged um, by central government or by central regional authorities uh, in some way or another. I think also, the, the frustration that they developed, developed at the kind of condescension that they constantly faced from um, um, industrial experts, that sort of thing, exacerbated the, the negative feelings they had towards these plans in the first place. And it was kind of, it, particularly in places where the state resorted to use of force, such as in Brockdorf in Germany or in Plogov in France, um, where there was this sort of naked violence of what radicals would have called the police state um, and what less radical people were completely surprised to see perhaps for the first term uh, first time in their lives um, that those this sort of frustration anger resentment um, really boiled over and that's what made these really strong at the local level on the other hand there's an entirely different set of actors which comes kind of from outside these local communities and who are drawn into them for a variety of reasons I think they are motivated in part by some of those environmental concerns, some of, these, some of these other things that are floating around in the mix for local people as well. But we tend to think of the outside supporters of um, anti-nuclear struggles as being kind of young people, probably from university towns or from larger cities that might be nearby or something like that. They came in a number of different groups. I think I focused, um, again, in my study on some of the ones that I thought were representative of change over time but also which were clearly prevalent and part of this movement. So one was these nonviolent action groups for whom the struggle of the Larzac farmers in southern France had been really symbolically important. And that kind of is lurking there in the background as something that casts a shadow over how they conceive of protests uh, themselves later on. They tended to be associated with a kind of Christian left, um, but not necessarily. This was sort of people who were itching for action and direct action of, of some kind, but who were really interested in doing it non-violently, for whom this principle of non-violence was absolutely fundamental. So that's one poll of the outsiders. Um, Another poll which was very much opposed to them was kind of on the radical left. And this is where some of those Maoists uh, that I mentioned earlier come in. More broadly speaking, in France, we would talk about Gauchistes, in Germany about K-Gruppen. Those are not necessarily ideologically attuned to Mao or to Trotsky or to something like that, um, but a sort of larger field of the radical left. And I argued that these people brought in a certain anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist discourse um, that went alongside the anti-militarist discourse that the sort of Christian left nonviolent groups articulated. A further set of actors then from the outside um, is probably the largest, I think in English we would just call these people hippies. But for um, the French activists, they, they were known as sort of ecologistes, and for Germans, they were these ökos, sort of, you know, your granola... Being sandal-wearing hippie is the mental image that those terms tend to evoke uh, in each, each language. And these people were motivated, I think, largely by a broad criticism of consumption that was very much in the main of this post-1968 moment. They saw nuclear power as something that was fueling consumerism, fueling production, fueling these kind of needless desires um, that they wanted to tamp down on, as it were. And I think the most interesting thing for me was how all of these different elements, the local people with with their particular constellation of concerns, and the outsiders with their very widely varied set of concerns, kind of interacted with one another and maybe even hybridized in a certain sense, that they came up with a collective discourse about the Atomstadt in Germany or about a... Choix de société, a kind of choice of society in France. And so it's not a single issue movement precisely because um, people are projecting all kinds of other issues onto it and using nuclear power to talk about a set of other concerns: anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, anti-authoritarianism, anti-militarism, um, but also so sort of local material interests and local economies.
0: Yeah, as as the book goes on, obviously it is it becomes very clear. That we're talking about a real cross-section of society not just within one country but across two countries that are coming together in the anti-nuclear movement so how did these cross-border networks of activists actually emerge from all of these
1: diverse interests and and how did they learn to work across national borders uh thanks that was that's that kind of question is really at the heart of what i was trying to, to accomplish with this um, and the the chapter that I devoted to this question, I've also written an article um, that's kind of devoted to related questions, um, is really, I think, the one which for me is, is the, the whole crux, the pivot of the, the whole book. But effectively, I think, as I said, these are sort of locally emerging struggles that wind up networking amongst themselves translocally. Translocally could mean just within one's own region, um, but it could also mean across national borders. It could mean nationally. Um, and the kind of the first major struggle where this kind of comes together happens to be, not coincidentally, in a border region. Um, and this is along the border between Alsace and South Baden. Uh, so Alsace in France and South Baden in uh, Baden-Württemberg in, in West Germany. And there's an interesting way in which the, the movements in Baden play off of developments that have previously taken place in France. So I'm going to try and keep a bit brief um, because it can be a quite complicated story to tell. But effectively, you see the uh, first mobilizations against nuclear energy occurring in Fessenheim in Alsace. Um, And they are largely unsuccessful, but they start very early in 1971, 1970, that sort of thing. Activists there start learning from their own mistakes, as it were, or not necessarily from their mistakes, but from their failure to change uh, policy. And when a new sort of environmental threat or what is conceived of as an environmental threat um, comes by in a nearby town called Markholsheim, this is a lead processing plant. It actually is not connected to nuclear power directly. But this winds up being a place where they sort of try out a new strategy, which winds up catching fire um, shortly after that. It's not the first time that anyone has occupied a site, which is what they wind up doing. There was a related protest in Switzerland in a town called Kaiser Augst that had also taken place earlier, but on a very, very small scale. So in Marcosheim, what you see is the local community kind of occupies this site, turns it into their own kind of space, their own venue for effectively for articulating their own ideas about an alternative society, in addition to their concrete direct action function of stopping the construction of this um, power station, or sorry, in this case, this chemical plant. In Markelsheim, the activists are relatively successful, and this owes in part to the fact that it's a German company that wants to build on French soil. So the French government doesn't care terribly greatly. They don't intervene. Um, they're happy to let you know, the, the Germans lose their investment, as it were, or to cancel the um, project that these Germans want to build there. And so as a result, activists are kind of able to experiment in this, in this borderland space. Very shortly after the protests in Markzheim, um have gotten underway, uh, or really prior to all this, there's a kind of commitment that's made by activists in both Alsace and Baden together, where they say, all right, this chemical plant in and we're going to link the struggle with plans for a nuclear power station that we know about in Wiel. The Wiel the project has its own sort of own prehistory in a town called Breisach, um, but I think I'll just sort of not get into that. Effectively, in Wiel, they kind of copy the strategy that had worked in Marklzeim. They oc- occupy the, the site and they use the fact that this is in a border region to come up with a very special narrative about this being sort of Franco-German reconciliation. This is, uh, we here down below, we speak in our local dialect. We don't have to go via Hanover and speak high German to communicate with one another, that this is our sort of local borderland thing. Um, And they spin this into this this really compelling legend that makes it attractive for the rest of um, the movements that are developing in Germany um, through their own local struggles but then also uh, for movements in France as well. And so it's kind of like this special borderland space that is part of the initial attraction. But as I said, this is, this is effectively something that emerges around each local uh, site in, in various ways. Um, those local sites network regionally, translocally, transnationally, they are all of those things at once in, in this borderland region, but they're not quite the same elsewhere. And so part of what this chapter was devoted to was looking at how people wound up working together or what their cross-border collaboration when it occurred meant. And what I think was really interesting is that, I mean, we kind of, there's a few modes in which activists themselves talk about um, protest they kind of, or about transnational connections, they tend to sort of line up a bunch of different nationalities and say, look at the diversity of our support, you know, we've got all these different people. But there's another sense in which this isn't necessarily the most valuable thing about, uh, about protest that this can actually be quite, quite limiting to talk about, to put people in sort of national boxes like that. It's useful when you sort of draw in support from outside, particularly from very, very far away. So when uh, activists in Prokdorf get, you know, telegrams of solidarity from people in Ireland, they can say, look, we've got this, our our struggle um, has projected so far uh, outside of our own borders that we also um, are becoming more interested in just our local struggle, but in this broader struggle against nuclear energy. And they, various different movements also sort of attach themselves to um, victims of nuclear technology in other places, including Pan. Um, this almost depends more on the Japanese activists who are reaching out to Europeans to sort of try and expand their own networks, but that these long distance networks have an important symbolic function. But there can also be other functions that uh, exist on a, on a smaller scale. The most obvious is this kind of inspirational level thing. So when people in Ville copy something that happens in Markosheim, uh, they're inspired by what's going on across the border. In this particular case, they are some of the same people. They're just moving across the border and moving the same strategy. But when you see people in Brockdorf copying what goes on in Ville, when you see people in Malville in southern France copying what goes on in Ville in Germany or in Brockdorf in Germany, these are sort of instances of of inspiration. I think that much is fairly straightforward, but there are also sort of ways in which people are constantly seizing upon what goes on abroad um, to advance their own interest, maybe even their own factional interest. So you see radical groups with their own radical networks um, who are saying... In Malville in southern France, look, what's going on in Brockdorf, where there's this violent conflict that has emerged uh, with the police, that's, that shows the kind of determination that we need to have here. So they're kind of projecting onto a struggle in Brockdorf um, their own aspirations for their local struggle. The same goes on with nonviolent activists as well, who talk uh, about how effectively Ville has, has shown the way, and we in Malville or in um, various other places in France also need to follow this sort of German example. I think the fact that it's in another country about which people know a bit less allows them to sort of mold and shape their understandings of it in a different way than if it were someplace that's right next door or someplace that you're reading about in your own national press constantly and where you have more information, that people use the ambiguities and um, the the things that are hidden from view um, to strengthen their own hand in a certain way. I think the other thing that's really interesting about these transnational interactions are the ways in which, uh, or these transnational networks, are how they fit into people's personal lives. So um, I have several examples that I bring up in this chapter of people who have perhaps complex national identities. One could even refer to the literature on national indifference to describe some of them, uh, like Jean-Jacques Rétis, this guy from Alsace, a classic area of, of national indifference. But this is someone who very much acts on both sides of the border. He is a major motor of protest around Fessenheim, uh, around Markusheim, and then he sort of brings his expertise and his ideas to the struggle in Wiel on the German side of the border. He is definitely not the only one, though. I think he's interesting as, as this kind of hybridized person who feels comfortable acting on both sides. A lot of other people don't feel so completely symmetrical in their, in their loyalties. So I talk, for for example, about a couple of um, people who grew up in Germany, one of them German, one of them actually uh, British in nationality, um, who were quite uncomfortable with their relationships to German identity on the one hand, uh, or this sort of discomfort of being kind of in between places, having grown up in a different place. And for them, I think activism, getting involved in anti-nuclear protest and particularly using this sort of transnational aspects of their own identity to establish networks across borders, um, that was something that helped them turn a difficult aspect of themselves into something positive, something that they could use.
0: So you mentioned the use of dialect and, and local identity in the construction of these, and, uh, these protests. And I think one of my favorite things about this book is the way you point out how urban spaces like Paris and Berlin have dominated our memory of the social movements that came out of 1968. But then you go on and you're talking about how a lot of these people in the anti-nuclear movement are coming from the cities to the countryside to protest and beginning to compare these places as as, as they're experiencing them. How does rural space and ideas about rural space and nostalgia shape the movement?
1: Um, I think this is one of the really interesting things about the 1970s as a period. Um, some of this has to do with sort of after effects of 1968, um, some of it has to do with the, the broader economic changes that are uh, going on that make agriculture a less and less attractive field and stuff like that. But there's this kind of nostalgia for the rural that emerges in the 1970s and finds all kinds of different articulations. Maoism, of course, is the, the, the most clear articulation of this, maybe even the most exaggerated articulation in some sense. Uh, where people are saying the peasantry is are uh, constitute, a revolutionary actor, and therefore we need to go to the countryside to organize the peasants, which makes probably a good bit more sense in China than it did in the relatively industrialized West Germany or in France. But um, at the same time, there's this, this kind of fascination with the rural that that I think is a clear part of the 1970s. And that plays on longstanding tropes that have existed since far before that um, about sort of well, contradictory tropes too. On the one hand, you've got the idea that farmers are reactionary these God-fearing, repressive people stuck under the the, the yoke of the monarchy, the clergy, or the aristocracy, or something like that. Um, But in the 1970s, people tend to read according to an exclusively positive tradition, which is sort of the idea of rural authenticity, um, maybe a sort of Rousseauian idea of rural spaces being uh, utopian, maybe more democratic, something like that. Um, and it's this notion of authenticity that just surges forward in, in the 1970s. You have these back-to-the-land movements. You have um, that converging with this kind of Maoist Long March idea, not, not necessarily in the sense of Mao himself having done it, but in the practice that French uh, activists and some German activists engage in it, where they go to more remote spaces um, to try and work with the peasantry. Or in Germany, I think you see this articulated more in sort of urban and semi-urban spaces where people are going into the factories. We think of Joschka Fischer and Ravruznera Kampf around um, Frankfurt. But in France, this is a bit more, there's a bit more movement in the in the rural space. And I think that has a certain resonance too for people in, in Germany. In any case, the, the rural gets valorized in, in these these particular ways at the same time that the local is becoming valorized. And in fact, this, this idea that local activists are more authentic, they're more valuable, their concerns are more important because they are directly affected. That is something that's absolutely central to the anti-nuclear movement. This sort of claim to authenticity in local spaces is part of uh, a claim to authority within the movement. And that's Something that I talk about in relation to violence um, elsewhere in the book, but sort of here, that's that's part of the attraction for people is they they want to go out to these rural spaces and and sort of experience something more authentic. That's that's how they're conceiving it at the time. That doesn't mean that they necessarily understand very well where it is that they're going to, um, particularly as there's lots of projections about what you know these these farmers who, on the one hand, could be you know horrible god-fearing um, conservatives, but on the other hand, are the kind of Bauernkrieg, jacquerie kind of um, peasants in open revolt kind of things. And I think the interactions between urban activists and rural activists are really indicative of, I mean, it's it's almost a, a different country unto itself, the, the countryside. There's There's a sense in which the misunderstandings and the projections that you see between France and Germany, between those two countries and other countries, also have a kind of reflection in the way that people from the city project certain ideas onto the countryside and in some to some extent vice versa. But so part of part of the complexity of that interaction has to do with, for example, religion, which um, urban activists, particularly left-wing urban activists, are more inclined to dismiss until they until they discover that if act, uh, effectively it is religious structures that sort of shape the organization of protest in, in some of in these communities. So for example, you know, people have their meetings right after church in a small town like Ville, because that's when everybody comes together. Or it's um, associations, longstanding associations that um, are, have been fostered under the auspices of the church, such as the um, Jeunesse Agricole uh, Chrétienne or Catholique, I can't quite remember. Um, But this sort of like Catholic Christian um, agricultural organization, which winds up being sort of the space in which rural activists Cultivate the um, kind of activist abilities that they're going to put to use in the anti-nuclear movement. Part of the um, other aspects of the projection are this, this sort of idea that that local people are somehow more clever, um, that that they that these people out in the countryside have a, a special knack for protest. And I think when you actually look at What goes on, certainly some people were able to express those natural abilities that they had. And one of one of the interviews uh, that I one of the interviewees that I spoke with says something about natural talents emerging in in, in this struggle. But uh, in many cases, actually, activism and the rural world were a difficult fit. People who had to do time-consuming farm work and get up early in the morning uh, weren't necessarily able to uh, deal with a kind of round-the-clock occupation. And from that emerges a kind of mutual dependency of local actors from the rural world and outside activists from perhaps more urban spaces, where there's a lot of tensions between them, particularly when when you have these long-term site occupations like you have in Ville, that there's a lot of misunderstandings about maybe sexual mores or about relationships to violence, those sorts of things that lead to conflict or lead to, if if nothing else, they lead to a kind of shock and one of the one of my favorite interviews i really enjoyed doing the interviews for this project that was that was probably the most rewarding aspect of it but one of the interviews that i really really enjoyed was with a woman who grew up in the countryside and who talks about having been confronted with this very unsettling destabilizing protest movement that kind of came into her local community um and how that transformed her relationships within her hometown her relationship with her husband with other people and how that gave her a sort of new set of friends and an additional community to tap into and how it also sort of pushed her politically from a sort of center. She she herself says that she wasn't uh, far right like her parents were. I think she probably moved in a more mild way from maybe a center right to a center left position. But she talks about this as being a sort of transformative experience with her encounters with the anti-nuclear movement and also with feminist movements that were associated with that, that sort of thing. I guess one last aspect uh, to touch upon with the sort of rural world Um, is the way that space functions differently there Um, and particularly when it comes to demonstrations if you have these really really small towns uh, where suddenly a whole lot of people from outside swoop down in on it um, they may have different expectations of what protest looks like than what these local people do. So that there's a certain sense in which people from outside don't necessarily know the lay of the land in some of these rural areas where where they go to protest they don't necessarily know how police are going to react and one of the most interesting and most difficult cases that i looked at was a major protest in 1977 in maville in southern france where someone was actually killed um, during the demonstration not the kind of thing you expect at any any environmental or environmentalist protest Um, but there's a lot of factors that contribute to the violence of that uh, situation but one of them is that people are just completely out of their element urban protesters um, are walking, you know, treading through m- the mud uh, for miles and miles. They don't know where they're going. The local leadership in this particular case was not particularly well organized, um, and that led to problems of communication. So you've got a certain leadership problem, you've got the fact that people are out of their element, and this contributes to a, a general atmosphere of confusion in which any kind of violent misstep is capable of having much more serious consequences.
0: So You raised the point of violence, which is one of the main dividing points of the movement. It it really is, you presented the issue that the movement splinters over in the late 1970s and early 1980s. What caused this schism and what role did violence play in anti-nuclear protest?
1: Um, This is actually the longest um, uh, chapter of the book, uh, the one about violence, because I think it was a very difficult one to deal with. The conclusion that I come to is that I think... There were committed, principled, nonviolent activists on the one hand, and also people for whom it was part of their principles to put up vociferous resistance, violent if necessary, um, on the other, and that these were not really they couldn't be combined effectively at the level of rhetoric, but in fact they coexisted with one another and in some ways complemented one another in terms of where the movement went. Um that has the potential to sound, I think, very um controversial, and I don't want to come out saying that I'm in favor of violence or something like that. But I think what happens is that the fundamental contradiction at the level of principles, at the level of morality, um, at the level of discourse, kind of gets pushed into the background over time. Um, This is in part a result of the fact that there's an escalation of violence um, that's fairly fierce and fairly quick um, between 1975 and 1977. So you have this Nonviolent site occupation that I've mentioned a couple of times in Ville it starts in 1975. In 1976, you have the first protests in Brockdorf. And the police in Brockdorf have learned a lot of lessons from what happened in Ville. And they're not going to allow activists to sort of simply march onto the site with maybe exerting a tiny bit of gentle force um, or something like that. The the, the the police are very, very determined to block this. That's something that winds up being mirrored in Malville in France. And that's why you get such a violent conflict there. In fact, the police between France and Germany are communicating amongst themselves, just as the demonstrators are. And this is where you have this kind of escalation building in both national contexts. But in any case, so with with Prokdorf, you see this big escalation because the police basically turn the site into a kind of fortress. And when there's a first demonstration, they push people back with tear gas, water cannon, mounted police. There's private security that is employing dogs and using pepper spray. It is absolutely chaotic. And people aren't quite sure what to do with this at this point. The nonviolent site occupation as an idea is something that they're not willing to let go of when this first demonstration occurs in Bokdov in uh, October 1976. They're still clinging to the idea that something like In Ville can happen, that if we just get onto the site, we can hold it for several months. In Ville, they held it for about um, uh, six months or so before negotiations were carried out and then kept the place you know, watched over um, for a time thereafter. There's this idea that we can we can make it work here even though we're facing very different circumstances. And this attempt to have a nonviolent site occupation just completely um, fails in the wake of the police uh, escalation of things. So uh, in Brokdorf, you kind of quickly get a stalemate between um, nonviolent um, tactics or this, this attempt to do something nonviolent and the kind of violence um, of the state quickly gets matched by uh, a certain violence on the part of demonstrators who are just mad as hell and not going to take it anymore as it were. And so the the second demonstration that occurs in Brockdorf, which is only two weeks after the first one, this winds up being quite quite violent, and everybody, both police and demonstrators of all stripes, are kind of scared at this point, and they kind of take a step back. The next demonstration takes place in Brockdorf, and I I realize this risks getting lost in the detail, but part of what I'm saying here is that each demonstration builds on the last one, both locally and also in terms of what's going on in other places. So The next major demonstration that occurs in Proktov is one where activists can't quite decide on a tactic and they kind of pull back and refuse to engage in in too much violence, but that tension is still there. And it explodes once again a month later in another town called Kronde, where um, a different conception of violence is used by a kind of Maoist groups. And effectively, you have this kind of back and forth between nonviolence and violent tactics, and it's slowly escalating over time. By the time you get to Maiville, as I said, the police, as well as the demonstrators, are talking to one another across borders and there's this massive escalation based on the fact that French police are expecting violence from German demonstrators and um, are ready to ready to stun grenades into the crowd um, at the drop of a hat there. And this reaches an impasse uh, after Malville and after another demonstration in Kalka, where basically the same point is driven home. Um, that mass demonstrations aren't going to continue to work, as a, certainly not as a means of getting onto the site and um, occupying it as a form of direct action. And so there's this kind of phase of experimentation that takes place between 1977 and 1979, where nonviolent activists are trying boycotts and these sort of creative media savvy actions uh, and more violent groups or I guess more radical groups, they wouldn't conceive of themselves as violent, they would conceive of themselves as militant they are engaging in more intense sabotage um, and and things like that. And there are a couple of cases where this spirals out of control, but they are rather marginal. Effectively, when you get to 1979, 1980, people kind of realize they have to cooperate again. So this separation between nonviolent activists doing their own thing with their boycotts and their own actions and violent activists doing their own, militant activists doing their own thing with sabotage, they kind of neither one of them is strong enough on their own to carry the movement forward. And so they wind up having to cooperate again, and they do so, but with lots of tensions and with lots of contradictions. And to make kind of a long story short, what ultimately happens is they wind up protesting alongside one another and looking the other way a little bit when it comes to small infractions against a kind of nonviolent um understanding of what's going on, or to sort of accepting the idea that whether protest is nonviolent or not, it has to be successful, and therefore we have to cooperate. So after 1970, the informal networks of
0: activists you focus on throughout the book begin to head their separate ways. How does the anti-nuclear movement change after the 1970s? and, And what was its legacy really moving forward?
1: I think this is one of the most complicated questions, because I don't think that the anti-nuclear movement has one legacy. In fact, part of the way I tried to conceive of this book was I wanted to look at the history of a large scale and contradictory social movement that had a lot of different potentials within it. And so when it comes to sort of drawing out what the legacies are of it, they they have to be plural, they have to be multiple. So um, I tried to trace this in two relatively separate domains, one being the sort of political changes that it instituted or to which it contributed, and the other being the sort of personal changes in the lives of activists themselves. The, the broader background, of course, is that France winds up going significantly nuclear uh, or remaining um, on target with the plans that it has already elaborated in the early 1970s to continue constructing nuclear power plants, whereas Germany kind of draws back and says, all right, well, we're not going to build the, everything we said we were, and they wind up having to close down a couple of projects, including uh, in a particularly humorous way, um, this one at Kaika. Which is meant to be um, a fast breeder reactor, a really special high technology kind of reactor that winds up being sold, eventually um, having never gone into operation. The premises wind up being sold to a theme park operator, and so um, now they have like a, a carousel that's in the cooling tower, and you can you know spend the night in a hotel that is the would have been the control center. It's you know it's almost a parody of of, of what nuclear power was supposed to be in that sense. So France and Germany kind of slowly split apart in terms of where high politics takes them um, as a result of decisions by um, Mitterrand and Kohl, uh, as well as in Germany, of course, you've got regional players who are involved in these decisions to a much greater extent than than France. And it makes it easier for construction projects to be blocked in Germany than in France. It's not exactly a complete success story either in Germany, uh, in in Germany uh, either, where um, you have certain nuclear power plants that people have fought really, really hard to prevent from being built, such as Brockdorf. Um, And construction goes ahead. Um, and they basically, the activists kind of lose on paper in terms of achieving their stated goals. They do not kind of win. But even those activists, almost to my surprise, even those activists feel like in the long term, they made a political difference. They made that difference in part by changing political discourse by pushing society in a different direction and by talking about kind of alternative energy, solar power, trying out new ideas. That's kind of one of the, the broad domains of success uh, in the field of politics. The bulk of what I have to say about political legacies of the movement, though, I'm not I wouldn't necessarily characterize it in terms of success or failure. I would say that this is different traditions that come out of it. So on the one hand, I think everybody knows that the Green Party, particularly the highly successful West German Green Party, feeds off of the energy that has gone into the um, anti-nuclear movement, um, that this, this winds up being their launchpad for becoming a, a meaningful player on the parliamentary political stage in West Germany. Interestingly, it's worth pointing out that this idea was sort of tried out at the local and at the national level in France before it was tried out in West Germany, but the political structures are different in France and it becomes, it's, it's not possible for them to sort of take hold the way that they do in West Germany, where, for example, uh, getting elected to a regional parliament uh, is a lot more meaningful and a lot easier to do. But in any case, so the Greens are one of the big political legacies that I think everybody knows about. And because I think that's well known, I devoted part of what I had to say about that to talking about how this was actually quite a controversial decision and that the development of the Green Party was in some ways not intended to become party. I mean, Petra Kelly has this idea of it being an anti-party party. And even before Petra Kelly, there's this plenty of people who are saying, what we want to do is we want to get our message out. We don't want to play the parliamentary political game. And so I, I devoted uh, a lot of my space about the Greens to sort of talking about the complexity of their emergence. Um, that's not passing judgment on them, um, but it's just sort of to maybe add a bit of nuance to a story that people already know. In parallel, I identified a couple of other different um, traditions, political traditions coming out of this. Very briefly, um, one of them is the considerable decline of the radical left, particularly if we think about West Germany, the decline of these K-Gruppen, these um, KPD, uh, KABI, various various groups that all begin with K. Basically, they decline in part because there's a split over the Greens, but I don't want to overstate the the importance of the Greens in this. I think they were already declining in a certain sense in the wake of competition from the so-called new social movements, that people were starting to get drawn into anti-nuclear protest, to feminist movements, to uh, gay liberation, those sorts of things in ways that made it difficult for the Kai Kulten to sustain themselves. And so part of this is the Kai Kulten themselves wind up being quite dynamic. Um, by the late 1970s, they wind up trying, I wouldn't say cynically. Uh, some people would claim that this is an entirely cynical ploy, that they're sort of trying to start co-opting issues of other groups um, to draw people in. I think more organically, their members are shifting their interests. Um, and these organizations are... Certain organizations like the Kabe are a bit more dynamic than the kind of dogmatic... Uh, that, we're, that we tend to uh, associate with that that field of movements. In any case, the, the long-term story for them is one of decline, um, which is related to a lot of different things. But in parallel to that, you have a rise of a different form of radical left politics uh, in the form of autonomy, which goes back, of course, to a period prior to uh, the anti-nuclear movement. There's the sort of intellectual references are workerism in Italy and that sort of thing, but it really... Gestates and uh turns into a much more dynamic movement or a set of set of ideas collect um associated with a movement through engagement with the anti-nuclear movement itself. Um and I think the long-term trajectory of that is we see today uh what's known as the sort of black bloc. In English, we call these people kind of anarchists a lot of the time. Um, but there's there's a long-term tradition that has gone past through the anti-nuclear movement and expanded greatly the scope of what it considers uh, and how it acts through its engagement in the anti-nuclear movement. In parallel with that, you have um, the sort of spread of non-violent practices well beyond just these non-violent action groups. So if we look again at Germany, where I think the story is most apparent with the peace movement of the 1980s, you see people engaging in these mass acts of uh, symbolic symbolic non-violence, such as these kind of Human chains and things like that. And that kind of popularizes nonviolence in a way that it wasn't really popular to that extent in the 1970s. I think nowadays we might not recognize the kind of resentments that existed against nonviolent uh, activists um, sometimes or the kind of difficulties they had convincing people. It's become almost selbstverständlich, uh, sort of, uh, you know. People have come to accept this now, in part as a result of the evolution, the further evolution of nonviolent practice during the 1980s. I think the other side of what I'm looking at in terms of legacies is what happens to the individuals themselves who are involved in this protest. On the one hand, you have, you have, I think, a lot of difficulties that people don't necessarily perceive, particularly when we talk about this movement as a kind of success story, something that, particularly in Germany, that seems to have changed policy over the long term and and that sort of thing. It it seems perhaps much happier than it actually was for the people who were involved in it, Um, some of whom devoted years of their lives um, to trying to prevent the construction of a nuclear power plant that in the end was built, or even in places where they did manage to stop um, a nuclear power station from being built, that this took a toll on families, on family relationships, on interpersonal relationships in a lot of ways. It's not all about Sad story, though. I mean, some people met their partners as a result of anti-nuclear activism. So you go to the meeting and you, you know, catch somebody's eye. And and this is sort of how how some couples emerge. But I think there's a kind of the legacies in terms of personal lives, at least with regard to families, are quite ambiguous or or they cut both ways, depending on who you are, depending on if we're talking about relationships, depending on when your relationship was formed. Um, It was much more difficult to sustain an existing relationship under the additional strain of heavily involved activism. Uh, than it was to take someone who you know through activism and carry your um, shared activism forward. I think some of the other uh, aspects of how this affects people personally is people wind up going different routes in terms of what their level of commitment is, what they think of activism in the long term as well. So some people stick with it for years and years um, and and are just really devoted not only perhaps to this issue but to other issues um, and really carry it forward. And for them, the anti-nuclear movement is is but one stage in a long-term process. For other people, this was something that they did. They did for a brief period of time. They felt like they took something from it perhaps, or they left unhappily for whatever reason, and then they moved on. Um, and so some of those people in this chapter reflect a little bit on on what it is that they felt like they took from it. But it's for them not necessarily the same kind of success story. And I wanted to include those people Um, not because I think they're necessarily the norm of activism, but because they're the kind of people who disappear from the radar when we write a story of a protest movement in relation to the documents that protest movements give us. Um, So for that reason, I wanted to sort of at least bring them up and the, there's probably two other domains in which personal lives get changed. First, careers can be affected both positively and negatively by involvement in activism. So some people take the reputations that they build through activism and use that as a stepping stone to um, the next thing that they're going to do. Not in a cynical way, um, I don't think. Although perhaps I mean sometimes these people would be would be accused of of opportunism um, or of taking something and professionalizing it. But I think most of them um, for this for this. Was, For most of them, this was just sort of the way their lives evolved organically moving forward from particular kind of activism uh, into different careers where their past is very much still a part of their lives. And finally, I think what's almost most interesting, but at the same time, absolutely the most difficult to pin down is what this does to communities, what involvement in the anti-nuclear movement did for both local communities. So I mentioned um, this woman earlier who... Um, felt like her community had expanded beyond the sort of local geographic base because she met all these people through activism. But at the same time, um, within her local community, it was a controversial position to be opposed to the nuclear power station. Not, not everyone agreed with that. In fact, uh, when the sort of promise of new jobs was attached to these nuclear power stations, then she and others like her who opposed it were um, seen as, you know, wrecking the local economy in a certain sense. And so for for those people there's a certain adjustment that has to be made. But I think the the story that I end this chapter on um and effectively that I end the book on um is one of a sort of committed radical left activist who this winds up being part of the history of the the early greens for him. That's how he winds up meeting people from the far right. Um they were people who had already been involved in the anti-nuclear movement and so for that reason, I think it's, it's absolutely relevant to discussing these legacies. But he winds up uh, you know, coming from a kind of hard communist background and embracing, or not necessarily embracing, but finding a way to work with and even value um, cooperation with people who were absolutely the enemy before that. People who uh, he and his organization had labeled fascists, um, who, with whom they would never ever cooperate on anything. And I think towards the beginning of the 1980s, you see these Marxist-Leninist groups, they are in decline. Their members are looking for new places to go. Um, And the experience of having been part of this um, broad-based movement against nuclear energy is something that helps them form a new community or engage with a different community than the one in which they had been involved before.
0: The attention to complexity throughout this book and and it's it's never a one-dimensional picture i have to say it's it's extremely well executed we've taken up a lot of your time though
1: but before we go i wanted to know what are you working on now uh thanks um actually kind of coming out of the preoccupation with transnational protest that that was central to this this past book looking at sort of how people engage with collaboration cooperation across borders has kind of led me to this next project that i have which is about borders themselves. So I kind of want to look at the post-1945 period, the Cold War period, and how people along the French-West German border on the one hand, and people along the Polish-East German border on the other, how under these very different constellations of liberal parliamentary democracy and capitalism on the one hand, and sort of um, the real existing socialism, aspirations to communism on the other, how people worked with borders, how people engaged transnationally under these very different conditions. Um, And it's something that I'm looking forward to working on more. It's um, all been put a bit on pause at the moment as I started a teaching job uh, last year, but I'm looking forward to getting back to it soon.
0: We're looking forward to reading it. I can't wait until it's published. Thanks. Thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Well, that about does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking with Andrew S. Tompkins about his new book, Better Active Than Radioactive, Anti-Nuclear Protest in 1970s France and West Germany. It's available from Oxford University Press, published 2016. And if you think you might be interested in picking up a copy, consider using the link in the blog post. It'll help Andrew out, and it'll help us out here at the Newbergs Network. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.